Revelation 9. So um, 15 years ago, not to the month, but about 15 years ago, we loaded up two moving, van, two moving trucks and we moved from Wilson, North Carolina to Somerville, South Carolina and our church met us at the storage unit. And we unloaded all those trucks into the storage unit because we were building a house and, and so we had to put our stuff somewhere in the meantime. And uh, I, was, we, I got here in April and so um, I moved in with the in-laws. Our, Anita's parents lived here in Somerville, which was great. They're super people. And then when school was out, Anita and the girls moved down and joined us, and we all lived in their house to October when we got to move into our house. And you know how it is when you move, whether it's into a dorm room, an apartment, a trailer, a camper, uh, <laughs> a house. It takes a while to get settled, right? And, and for us, and this is just us, but you're not really settled until there's at least one picture on the wall. Uh, and... and you're not really settled until either there are no boxes visible, whether they're unpacked or not, it's another story. But no, you don't want to see any boxes that are just sitting there stacked, needing to be dealt with. But at some point, you can kind of look, and you look around, and you go, all right, house is in order, at least for this moment. <laughs> and then the kids come back inside, and yeah. Uh, so um, having your house in order is... It's an expression that we use. It's more than just that. But it's important because it kind of goes back to this idea that there's a, it, it's easier to be at peace and at rest when, you're, when your things are in order. I don't know if you're like me, but my desk, when it's not in order, is really hard for me to focus. And it's so hard for me to focus that I will literally leave my office and go to a restaurant where there's a nice clean table with nothing but napkins on it, and I will sit down with my book and pad, notepad and work there and not have, and even though there's people all around, not be distracted because I'm working at a clean desk. It's orderly and, it, and it's in order for that moment. And that help, I think it helps us all, some more than others. Some, it doesn't matter, but I would say most of us deal with that. Now let's think about our, let's go from physical house, let's go to a spiritual house. Okay, and we've talked about this before. This imagery comes from years ago when Franklin Graham had a crusade in eastern North Carolina and he had a little booklet and it was about the heart and talked about the different rooms in your spiritual house. And, and uh, I could go through every room in the house. I could probably do a sermon on it, but just think of just a couple of rooms. Think of, um, think of your kitchen, right? Your spiritual kitchen. Is that in order? Are you, are you disciplined in the things that you eat and drink? I think about your, uh, your family room. Is your family life in order? Are you spiritually discipling your kids and your grandkids and each other and yourself? Um, think of uh, your bedroom and your marriage. Is, how is that spiritually? Are you leading one another well? Or are you praying for your future spouse? Or, or where are you in all of that? Think of the closets in your house where you put things away so that I'll deal with it later because I don't want to deal with it now. Maybe it's still in the moving box. Or maybe it's where you hide things you're ashamed of but don't want to get rid of. I just want to hang on to that a little bit longer. So I could go on, right? You get the idea. Spiritual house. Is your spiritual house in order? And it really comes down to this, and this is the question I want you to think about today, is is your heart in order? Because to me, that's a measure of your spiritual house. You're not ever going to put your house in order if your heart's not in order. Okay? It reminds me of, and I've said this, and I'm going to say it again because it's so good when, when we talk about taking responsibility. 
and we talk about wanting to fix the things that are broken in our world, and we rant and rail against politicians and anybody else that will, will read our tweets, whether they read them or not, and, and, but we won't take care of our own business at home. We won't make our bed. We won't clean our room. We won't take care of our own family, but we'll rail against everybody else who's not doing that. Great, great example. Our country's trillions of dollars in debt, and we think, how irresponsible is that? But I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you owe money to anybody. Now, there's a difference between owing money and being ridiculously beyond your means, which is what our, our government has done. But some of us are living beyond our means, too. So you see what I'm getting? It's, it comes back to you have to take responsibility for your situation. And that is all impacted by your heart. And that is your, your, your relationship with God. Your finances are affected by that. Your physical health, your education is affected by that. Your relationships with people, friends, family, all of those things are impacted by your spiritual walk with the Lord. So what does that have to do with Revelation 9 and the judgments, <laughs> the fifth and sixth trumpet, right? Well, it really gets down to the way it ends. It ends like this. God is stretching out these judgments, Okay, he could just do once. He could just go, "Womp!" I just squashed all the people that aren't trusting and following me. He could do it in one full sweep, but he doesn't. He spreads it out. Why? I think one reason is because he's a merciful God, and he's saying, "I'm trying to give you a chance to repent and believe. I'm trying to help you sober up. I'm shaking you. I'm grabbing you by the collar and going, think about what you're not doing. I'm slapping you. If you're a French, you use a little glove, right?" I'm trying to sober you up to the reality that where you're headed is not the best is yet to come. But my kids can say with conviction the best is yet to come in the face of persecution and suffering even here and now. So as we read through this continuation of John's revealing what Daniel was told to squash, God says, Daniel, roll it up. And don't read it. John, unroll it and read it. It's time to tell people what the future is going to be like. Let's look at it and see what it has to say for us today. It should impact us today. We are reading history. It just happens to be future history. It's as good as done. It just hasn't happened yet, at least not from our perspective. God's already seen it, right? He holds it all right here. So let's start reading. And we're going to start and we're going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to work through it as we go. Context, let me give you a quick overview of context. We start in chapter 1. Jesus, the risen Lord, is risen. he is revealed. He reveals himself in all his glory. He speaks to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches representing all churches. And, but they are real churches at the same time. Chapters 4 and 5, we enter the throne room, and we see the risen Lord worshipped, as he should be, and as we should. 6, he then begins to go through the judgment, starting with the seals. And we went through seven seals, and we learned that the seventh seal is actually seven trumpets. And we'll learn today, the seventh trumpet is actually seven bowls. And those are the judgments that God is bringing against the world, drawing it out, moving, giving people the opportunity to repent and believe, to turn from their selfish, foolish, non-God-fearing ways to a loving, almighty, all-powerful God who is holy, holy, holy. And we have no business trying to approach his throne unless he makes it so that we can. If he invites us and covers us, then and only then do we have any good sense to approach him. And even then, he is worthy and we are not. So with that in mind, let's continue the trumpets. This is going to be, he calls them three woes, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet. I don't really know why. 
um, except that I want to say, whoa, you know, but it's not that kind of whoa, um, but we're just going to call them trumpets because I don't, I don't know that it, it really adds anything else. The fifth angel, verse 1, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now, if you know anything about astronomy, and we never get to hear about that here, but if you ever hear anything about astronomy, you know that a star's uh, bigger than a planet, and it would consume the planet. And what you're seeing here is symbolic language, and this is throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, watch this. The star was given a key to the shaft of the abyss. Okay? So the abyss is a bottomless pit, and that's where some of, I, I'm, not, I'm assuming not all of, some of the fallen angels that rebelled along with Lucifer in heaven when they tried to overthrow God, which was really not a good idea. Why in the world would the creature think he could overthrow the creator? But Lucifer had it in his head, though he was the angel of angels, the worship leader, some think, of heaven and the angelic hosts. He failed, and he was cast out along with a third of the angels, and some of them were put into the abyss and locked up. Okay? We don't know exactly who the star is, Many think it's Satan. Some think it's one of his chief angels. But this is, what, this is what a demon is. A demon is a fallen angel or a dark angel. Someone that God gives authority to. He, God sovereignly allows this to happen. You can say, whoa, what is God doing? How is he letting evil happen? Here's what God is doing. God is judging evil with evil. Okay? He is permitting evil to act out its nature. And it's going to end up serving his purposes, which is to judge evil humanity. Okay? So, the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. So, we're talking it's billowing out. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. So, now we're blocking out the light from the, into the sky. and it, There's so much smoke here. Okay? Now, out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Okay, so locust is like a big bug that flies, okay? And their whole mission in life for their five months of life is to strip off every leaf they see. So if you see a swarm of locusts, and we don't see this over here, but when it happens in a massive swarm, it's considered a plague, sometimes of biblical proportions. Think back to the... In fact, you can parallel all, all these judgments. You can go back to the, um, the ten plagues in, in Moses' day, and they all line up. It's like God, it's almost like God did it on purpose, you know? So there's this, and, and they're sent to, it wipes out all your food source, okay? You can't go down the street to Whole's Food because they get their food from the fields. And when all the leaves and everything's stripped off, so you create famine. That's why it's called a plague, because there's no food. So this, these, but these locusts are demonically different. They may have some of the looks, but they, he's going to describe them in a minute, but they have a very different purpose. In fact, he's going to tell them, don't eat the green stuff, okay, which is, you know, no salad bar today. So here's what he says. Out of the smoke, the locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth, which is a totally different uh, insect or creature. They were told not to harm the grass on the earth or any plant or tree. Here's who they were supposed to harm, not kill but only harm, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, okay? We spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks talking about the seals of God, but I'm going to review this in case you missed it. This is not the seals of judgment. This is something totally different. This is the seal of God on your life, 
that is the demonstration of the fact that God holds you and protects you and keeps you from the judgments that he has reserved for those who do not fear him, for those who do not trust him, for those who do not follow him. Okay? It's really simple. You're for God or you're against God. You may be passively against God. You're still against God. If you're not for him, by grace, through faith, through his son Jesus Christ, then you're against him. And I realize a lot of people don't know that. That's why we're supposed to be telling them because there's a lot of ignorance about things of the Bible today. We used to be a biblically literate country. No more. We have to talk to people with a humility and a grace that says, I realize that you may not know this and it's probably partly my fault that you don't already know this, but I'm going to exercise compassion and mercy in your life by telling you the truth that sets you free. Okay, so, so only people that... So this is who they are coming to tor torment. Anyone who is not for and in Christ. Okay? Now, how many is that going to be? You're going to see it's a lot of people. All right, so, and there's some kind of way that God is going to seal us on our foreheads. Now, now I don't know, I don't think that there, somebody's going to go to a movie theater and grab a stamp and start popping this glow-in-the-dark stamp on everybody's foreheads. I just don't think it's going to be that way. But yet... It's going to effectively have that impact because somehow, if you have one on your head, I'm, as a believer, I'm going to be able to see it. I don't know if anybody else is going to be able to see it, but I think we're going to be able to see each other's if we're in Christ. That's just no extra charge for that. It's not in here. I'm just, I'm just spitballing, but that's what I think. All right, so they, verse 5, they were not allowed to kill them. Okay, These creatures are not allowed to kill these people who don't have the seal of God but only to torture them for five months. Oh, only five months of torture. That's awesome. Um, but that's what their job was. And think about it. Uh, it's just, why five months? The life of a, of a typical locust is made in September. It's five months. That's their season. And then it says, and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. So somehow this scorpion, um, this, this creature is able to both uh, attack from the front and the rear. And you're going to see that this is a pattern. This is the first of two armies you're going to see described in this chapter today. Two armies, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet, each has an army that is designed to judge humanity that is unrepentant. Look at this, verse 6. During those days, these are future days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now, I don't know how much pain and suffering you have to be in to want to die, but that's where they are, and they can't. Somehow, they're prevented from being able to take their own life even, okay? Now, when we say this is in the future, this is future history, it could be 50 centuries from now. It could be 50 years from now. It could be 50 minutes from now. We need to wake up and realize that this is not a myth. This is not something that's just, oh, somebody who had a bad pizza night and they wrote, and this is what came out. This is something that lines up. It's loaded with so many Old Testament references of things that have happened that point to this, and it all comes together in such a, a detailed way. It's like, how, who could make that up? And, and the writings that this draws from span 1,600 years. Well, it's more like, really, about 2,000 years. So, verse 7, he starts to describe these creatures in more detail. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads, they wore something like crowns. Again, this is a simile. Like or as indicates it's a simile, which is kind of like a metaphor with the word as or like. Like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, that is destroyer. So um, in case you don't know, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, and, and it's in an ancient version of Hebrew. It's a dead language. Same thing with the New Testament, except it's written in an ancient version of Greek um, that is dead as well, uh, Koine Greek. So, um, so John is writing it so that both Old Testament right readers, not Old Testament readers, but Hebrews and Greeks could, could understand this word. And this word is really referring to Satan, destroyer, because that's what he does, because that's one of his names, Apollyon, Abaddon. He is the one leading the charge, okay? So God is actually using his enemy to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereignly in control. And while we may be tempted to be afraid because of these judgments, if you're in Christ and you're sealed, you're protected. That doesn't mean I don't think that that you're necessarily insulated from all of this. And that kind of depends on which side of the rapture you fall on. So um, again, this is, a lot of people disagree with me on this. I'm just telling you where I am right now. If you were to ask me, what do you think? This is what I think. I think that Daniel's 70th week is going to be seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation. And I think that Jesus will rapture his church, which means basically get in the back, let's go, um, at the beginning of that seven-year period, let's go home. And that would leave the only people on earth would be those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are left behind, okay? And that after the end of those seven years, Jesus will come back and he will, he will go A-team on everybody and he'll take care of all the evil and, and, and win every battle in a heartbeat. In that seven-year period, okay, so we've gone through all the seals. We're going to be done with the trumpets. Those seals and trumpet judgments, I believe, happen the first three and a half years of that seven-year period of time. And then I guess the bowls will happen either, I think they happen after, but I'm not sure yet. Okay, so if that's the case and people are raptured and they disappear and this is a dramatic, boom, instantaneous event and all kinds of chaos happens to our world as millions of people all of a sudden disappear, that's going to leave some people back going, scratching their head going, hmm, I see a pattern. A lot of Christians are gone. What's really going to be sobering is for those people who are members of churches and they're still here. Okay, I was one of those people as a teenager. I was a member of my church. I jumped through every single hoop. I was baptized at the right time. I was confirmed at the right time. I had all the different paraphernalia you could have. At 13, I became a member of the church. Had a Bible with my name on it, a hymnal with my name on it. I was certified, not some said certifiable. And I went to college thinking at 18 I was a believer, and I got to college and I heard the gospel for the first time and realized, oh, I've got to decide. Like, I have to trust, that's me. And I trusted Christ and became a, a follower of Christ my freshman year. If the rapture had happened before that night when I trusted Christ, I would have been in church surrounded by other people who didn't know Jesus either. 
And the old joke, right, is you're not, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. You're, you're not a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you know, trust, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is intolerant in that way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. You can say, well, he's very intolerant in who he loves, okay? But you still come to him on his terms. He is God after all. And this is important that we remember. There is a God. You're not him. Are you ready for him? That's the question. All right, so we're going to keep going here. But my point in saying that is that in this, that there are going to be people who trust, who come to their senses after the church has been taken home, and they're going to go, oh, I know what has happened. This is that rapture thing that they were talking about one Sunday. I wasn't paying attention. They were kind of, and, and, it, and they will run to Revelation, and they'll run to their Bible, and they'll read, and they'll go, and they'll fall on their faces, and some of them will repent and believe and come to know Christ in the tribulation. And their lives will be, wow, because they'll be going through these judgments. They'll be watching these judgments happen and, and yet somehow protected from them. And they'll, they'll realize, we need to tell as many other people as we can. And God's stretching these judgments out because he's like, yes, I need some more to repent and believe. And that's why I waited to save you until, well, you're just hard-hearted and stubborn. That's why you did it. But I'm using you and your stubborn and hard-heartedness now that it's a tender heart. So it, God is not doing this because he's weird. We think he's weird because we don't think like he thinks. If we would think like he would, we would be in a lot better place. So let's keep going. The, the locusts look like horses. We described them. Verse, um, let's see, let's go to verse 10. 11. They had a, as king. Okay, so we're in 12. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Okay? The next woe is six. This is the second army. The seventh woe is the next, is the seven bowls. We're not talking about those today. Sixth angel sounded his trumpet. I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. If you remember, God is sitting in his throne. God the Father is sitting in his throne. God the Son is at the right hand of the throne as a lamb slain but yet standing, pointing to the cross and the resurrection in one picture. In front of them is the altar. Underneath the altar are the, are the martyrs. They're crying out, avenge us, God, avenge us. Who's the first avenger is Jesus, okay? But, uh, and then he goes, so we're here at the altar, the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it is said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, the voice speaking out of, and I don't know who it is. It could be God's voice. It could be someone else's that he's delegated he's plenty of angels to choose from and this is what the voice says release the four angels who are bound at the great river euphrates okay so um apparently there are four angels right now bound and chained by god that are there for a day when he will release them and they will have a job and i'm going to show you what that job is but it's the job of the sixth trumpet and it is a job of judgment they're at the river Euphrates. The Euphrates River runs right in through uh, Iraq and Iran, that region. It's one of the four rivers in the Garden of Eden. Um, the Tigris and Euphrates were two, and the other two, I don't remember their names, but they're gone, so I don't really care. But um, Euphrates River, it kind of acts as the boundary. It's the east, one of the eastern boundaries of really the ultimate area of Israel. So it is biblically, symbolically, a barrier that the enemies must cross to attack God and his people. 
and there's an army coming. Oh my goodness, look at this. All right, so we're in verse 15. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour, day, month, and year, God is a God of timing, all right, that's really important to him, were released to kill. This is their job. The first army was not supposed to kill. This army is absolutely going to kill. And what are they going to kill? A third of mankind. A third. Okay? How many is that? Well, let's just realize that, remember, the seals, a fourth of mankind was killed. So we've already had a significant loss of people in life. And that's not even including if the raptures happen and taking those people. Okay, but if you just forget that for a second. So a quarter of humanity was taken in the first judgment, one of the seals. That leaves three-fourths left, right? And if you take a third of what's left, that takes you to half. So after this trumpet, half of humanity is been, has been judged and killed. All right, that's people we know. That includes people we know. That includes family members that we know don't know the Lord and maybe haven't surrendered to him yet. That's coworkers. That's people that sit next to you in in geometry class. That's people who live across the street. This is their future apart from Christ. Will Will we act with the compassion we say we have? The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. That's 200 million. And I think if you Google, you'll find that there was a historic, there was a, uh, a news report years ago when China said they had an army, standing army of 200 million. Now, I'm not saying that's who this is. I don't know. I'm not saying that this is just people. I think this is people being used by Satan and there's a demonic twist thrown into it. Because he, look at this description, verse 17 and 18. So it's a cavalry. This is not a standing army. This is a riding army. And whether these are literal horses or symbolic of some kind of modern-day military machine, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. The impact is the same. Let's not lose that. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. So John... First century John is trying to describe things that may look more familiar to us than to him. Okay, if they're machines, he's never seen a machine before. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur. So whatever it is that this creature or machine is spewing, it's described as plagues that kill. Okay, it could be biological warfare. It could be poison gas. It could be, you know, just what it says. I don't have a problem with it being literal. I don't have a problem with it being symbolic. The point is, half a third of humanity is going to die as a result of this plague, of this judgment. 19, the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails. It means they could attack from the front or the rear. For their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. This thing sounds like the locust. The locust could do the same thing. The point is, there's nowhere to go. 
There's nowhere to hide. They're coming for you. And God is allowing it to happen as, as he allows evil to judge evil. Isn't it ironic that the ones they worship are the ones killing them? The God they worship, Satan and his legions, are the ones killing them. He's called the destroyer. It's because that's what he does. And I'm going to, I want to, this last couple of verses really sew it up and really sober it up. It should. Verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, that's the, the, the rest, that's the half, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Even though that. Now we've seen how dramatically impactful a world pandemic is. And we're talking way, way, way smaller numbers of deaths compared to what we're talking about here. It's not even close. Because you're now removing so many people from the workforce that essential things are not able to happen because there are just too many people missing. So you talk about food chain issues, right? You talk about just the basics for survival dramatically impacted by this. Okay? They see God move and they don't fear God. Now, before we get too high and mighty, we would be just like that if God hadn't intervened in our lives. We would be just as blind and deaf to this truth if God didn't intervene and rescue us. Open our eyes long enough for us to see the light and recognize the truth that was in front of us. We still had to exercise the faith. Okay, I'm responsible for my decision, but I can't decide for Christ if he doesn't draw me. I can't follow him and trust him if he doesn't make himself visible to me, if he doesn't reveal the truth. He has written this so that truth can be seen about the future history that is to come. And if this doesn't sober you, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to do. And I'm talking to the church here. I'm, I'm saying if this doesn't sober us as followers of Jesus to, to step into our places of work and, and where we live and all of that and, to, and be prayerfully thinking about people that cross our paths, how can I show them Jesus? How can I prayer, care, share into their life Jesus? Then, man, is your heart beating? Is my heart beating if I'm not doing that? And I'm guilty. I struggle with that. I get so distracted. It's real easy to get caught up in the things of this world. It's so easy. And it's only getting easier. Last, last comment on this. The writer here basically equates worshiping demons with worshiping idols. Okay? And while I know that you probably don't have a totem pole in your house that you bow down to, you probably don't have a Buddha statue that you bow down to and pray to. But an idol is anything that we worship ahead of God. Let me say it even more simply. It's anything we put ahead of God. 
And you say, well, I don't know if I'd do that or not. Think about what you spend your money on. Think about what you spend your time on. I'm talking about discretionary money and discretionary time. Take your bills and put them aside, okay? Take the time where you have to go to work and put it aside. What do you do with the rest? Take your sleep time and push it aside. The discretionary eight hours a day that you have, what do you do with it? The discretionary dollars, Darren, I don't have any discretionary money. It's, um, I'm upside down in that. Well, that answers your question. What are you spending that on? You're probably not borrowing money to give to the church. Just a hunch. I've never heard of anybody doing that. You might be different, but eh, probably not why you borrowed. Okay? I've never borrowed money to give to a church. Full confession here, right? You see what I'm saying? We can worship things that are demonic, but they don't look demonic. That's what makes them so insidious, because they don't look it. It's kind of like, well, who could, you know... How can we take Satan seriously? He's, he runs around in red thermal underwear with a pitchfork, right? That cartoon does not reveal who he is. He is the destroyer. Look for the worst news story. Multiply it times a million. Now you're starting to approach what he wants to do. He wants these people to die. What do we do with this? Ask the question again. It's not just is your house in order. Is your heart in order? Okay? If you go through your spiritual house, are all those rooms, are all the windows open so the, and, the, and the window blinds open so the light of God can, can flood the room with light and expose what's in there? When you see what's in those rooms, are you okay with that? Are you opening the closet doors because there are no windows so the light can get in there? What crevices of your heart need the light of God today? What was our memory verse? In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. You want to truly live? You've got to receive the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned to his disciples and said, you're the light of the world, because I'm going to go stand by my Father as the Lamb who is slain but alive. And I'm going to empower you to radiate the glory of God just like I did times all my people. What a beautiful picture. We get to do this, guys. This isn't, okay, twist my arm. Come on, that is, don't do that. It's like Gene said, don't give unless you can do it and be glad about it. Cheerful. It's not just cheerful giving money. Cheerful giving your life. Give it, surrender it. Jesus gave his life for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He didn't enjoy the cross, but by joy, as his strength, he gave willingly, gladly, for the glory of his daddy and for our benefit. That's who we say we follow. So are you following it? Following him? You're not going to follow him if your heart is not in order. So how do we get our heart in order? This is, this is how I want to end today. Um, I think I, we might have this on the screen. Not sure if it's going to be there. But if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Psalm 51. And this just happened to be in my Bible reading this today. Right? God is just preparing. He is laying this out. I didn't pick it. He picked it. And I'm only going to read the first ten verses. I want to read these verses as a prayer. Okay? And if this prayer is 
echoes the sentiment in your heart right now, just agree in your mind. You can just say, God, I agree with that. I agree with that. And that's you. You're just praying right along, right? That's just beautiful. Your prayer is always the will of God if you're praying in the spirit, uh, the word of God, right? So we've got all the prayers we need. You just need to read them and pray them with faith, by grace through faith. Here we go. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, have mercy on us, O oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, my gross sin, wash away all my iniquity and sinfulness and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge, and surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Even in the womb, you want me to be faithful. So clearly I'm a person in the womb. Clearly I am a life you treasure in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, Lord, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What a promise. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Jesus' name we pray.